Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. Tanya Bluford is the founder of Bluford Consulting LLC, and she's passionate about creating enterprises that excel because they're committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. She has 20 plus years of working with both small and large national companies and organizations in the DEI and leadership development spaces. In working with organizations across the country, She knows all too well how a lack of intentional and strategic efforts to create work environments where all can thrive can affect the ability of the company to achieve its mission. Ms. Blueford brings to her consulting practice a wealth of experience from both the for-profit and not-for-profit sectors. Tanya believes that companies, institutions experience change and growth in the DEI space one heart at a time. Successful DEI practices thrive when individuals can have honest and thoughtful dialogue and allow themselves to be vulnerable for the sake of learning and expanding their worldview. Once we can see the world from a different perspective, we can make decisions, develop practices, and create policies that are truly inclusive. Tanya holds a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Laverne and a Master of Science degree in Counseling Psychology from California State University, Hayward Campus. She lives in San Francisco with her husband and two daughters. I am so excited to welcome Tanya Blueford with Blueford Consulting, LLC. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I am thrilled to be a part of your podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. It is, of course, my pleasure. And I can't wait to talk to you because I know you've been working in this industry for a while. But why don't you, can you tell me a little bit about how you even got into this line of work? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I often tell people when they ask me that question that this line of work chose me. I didn't really choose it. And that isn't to imply that I don't enjoy this work or I'm not passionate about it. I am very much so. But, you know, it's just been a part of my life. So I was initially born in a very small town in Louisiana. And really, in my formative years, I didn't have a lot of racial exposure. I was cared for by family members while my mom worked. And really, it wasn't until I kind of left the cocoon of my family, if you will, and we moved to San Francisco, not San Francisco, but California, and I soon became sort of the only African-American person in class that I began to see that, huh, things were a little bit different. I mean, people always ask me, well, what's your nationality? What's your nationality? What are you? Which really stunned me because... I had never been asked that <laughs> until I got into school. So it was like, well, what do you mean? What am I? I'm a girl. I'm human. I'm <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> oh, right. And so then I got, you know, obviously I did figure out what they were talking about. And when I would say I was black, they people would say, well, 
you're really not. Like, yeah, I really am. <laughs> I no. love when people tell you what you are, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then people would say things like, oh, well, you're not black like them. Oh. And again, I had limited experience. I didn't know what black like them was. Were they saying, well, I wasn't as, as dark as them? Or did they mean something else? I was really naive to the to that whole space, if you will. Mm. Until I, interestingly enough, I uh, went to school all through high school here in California. But I spent a lot of time in Louisiana with my family, particularly my grandparents loved my grandparents to death and really wanted to spend as much time with them as possible. So if I wasn't in school, I was there. And before I started school, I spent a lot of time there. So I really felt that Louisiana was my home and that's where I belonged. So when I turned 18, I wanted to go to school, a college in Louisiana. And so I went to a college in northern Louisiana and had an experience there that really changed everything. I mean, it just really rocked my world. So while I was there, long story short, there were several different cafeterias on campus. And the cafeteria that I ate at was typically a cafeteria that many of athletes, student athletes ate at, and a lot of the freshmen ate at, with the exception of on the weekends. On the weekends, all the cafeterias were closed with the exception of one. And so that one that was open on the weekend was the one that I went to because, you know, I was in the dorm and I was there seven days a week. And so there was always this interesting dichotomy between the two cafeterias, as stupid as that sounds. One had salt and pepper shakers and one did not. They had those little tiny packets of salt and pepper. And I know this sounds stupid, but bear with me. I love a lot of pepper, love a lot of spice. Again, from uh, Louisiana, South- right? <laughs> there you Louisiana. go. From Louisiana, love a lot of spice. And so, you know, I would go through 20 of those um, peppers pepper packets. Well, shortly before, and this is probably the spring, I guess, of my freshman year, the student newspaper, uh, there was a story that appeared where journalists, a student journalist, asked the director of, of food services why that was the case, why one cafeteria had salt and pepper shakers and one did not. And the response by the director at that time was, well, blacks tended to lick the tops of salt and pepper shakers. And it was unsanitary. And therefore, since most of the athletes were black at that particular campus, it, and that's the uh, cafeteria where most of them, most of the athletes ate at, along with the, the freshmen, that was the reason why we had salt and pepper shakers. I mean, had salt packets. Of packets. Salt oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. And so I was livid and I just couldn't believe my ears. Not only could I not believe my ears, my friends at the time, they, they were angry too. But I mean, I wanted the resignation of the director of food services. I mean, how in the world can he keep his job stating some things like that? Right. But my friends who, you know, were maybe from Louisiana or the surrounding area, 
I had more of, yes, this is bad, but what can you expect? This just is how it is. This just happens. Well, and let me just ask you, like, what time period are we talking about? Oh, now you're asking me to share my age. Well, um, <laughs> just give us a decade. Just give us a decade. <laughs> yeah, this was uh, this was in the 80s. Okay, okay. So uh, definitely a while ago, but at that time, I thought we had arrived, you know. Yeah. Um, didn't realize that something like that uh, still existed. And during that same time period, there I think it was one of the fraternities, but, you know, it was never proven, but there was a fraternity that celebrated um, the Old South during the spring. So they had a bunch of, you know, balls and, right. you know, just fun kind of things for their members. But at about the same time they were having that, also there were flyers started appearing in various places on campus about having a slave auction or lynching. And oh. I, again, was absolutely furious. And so at the bottom line was I was really upset, uh, needless to say, and I was a pretty, I was an activist. So I was, you know, marching and I was writing letters and, and I was doing those types of things. And my mom at that, at the time, she begged me not to. And she says, you know, they're going to kill you. They're going to hang you. You have to come home. So I went ahead and I finished out that semester. And then I remember writing a really long letter to the president of the university saying, you know what, I will give somebody else my money. This is intolerable. And since it's you're going to tolerate it, I don't have to. And I will give my hard-earned money to somebody else in order to complete my, my education. So the, wow. when I say that shook my world, it really did because I hadn't experienced anything at, to that level being raised here in the Bay Area. And while I knew that I was treated differently than some of other family members that were darker complected than I did, than I was, am still, it, it was never to that level. And so at that moment in time, I just felt like, this isn't right. And this is where I'm supposed to be. This is the kind of work that I need to be engaged in. Yeah. Well, and thank God that you are. I mean, this is, I, I don't even know what to say to some of the stuff that I hear, I tell you. So, so after college, sounds like after you got out of school, you ended up where? Well, um, after I graduated from college, I ended up, I completed my bachelor's um, degree from a small uh, liberal arts college, Southern California, University of Laverne. And then after that, I came back here to the Bay Area and just went on my personal journey during different things, got engaged, moved to Texas, got unengaged, came back home <laughs> and decided that I wanted to get my master's in counseling. And so started uh, my master's program at the University of um, California, the Hayward campus and completed my education there uh, for my for my master's degree. And then after that, started working in the foster care system because as well, I'm not sure a lot of your listeners know, but, you know, 
a majority of the kids in foster care, at least here in Northern California, are people are are youth of color, and their outcomes once they graduate from the foster care system can at times not be good. Well, not at times. It's really hard for them. You know, there is no mm-hmm. safety net for them. Right. And so th- I really wanted to change that narrative and spent probably almost 10 years working in that industry. And then honestly, the only reason I left it was, I tell you, I had a six-year-old little girl that was on my caseload and she was on suicide watch. Oh my goodness. And at that point, I thought, you know, I... I think I've done what I can do here. I think I I, I need to move on. Um, and so I I did after that and started working in uh, at the YMCA. That's when I took my first position at the YMCA here in San Francisco. Really working in underserved communities and providing. A- um, not only programs, but also engaging the community and community building. Our branch of the Y was a very different type of branch. We didn't do fitness programs. A lot of times people think the YMCA, they think, you know, kind of swim and gym sort of thing. But right. that was yeah. the work that we did. Yeah. Um, we did truancy intervention. Um, we did a lot of work with seniors. We were really engaged in the community working with and helping them in whatever way the community needed. I don't even like to say helping because it really wasn't. It was providing a venue and a forum for the community doing what the community needed for itself. Right. So whether whatever resources that that became. Absolutely. Wow. Well, that's, I mean, that's some great work. And then if I remember correctly, you you kind of really focused on kind of impacting diversity, equity, and inclusion during the time you were there because of yes. the community you were serving. Is- yes, 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 absolutely. Um, I became the executive director of a branch here in San Francisco. And again, we still, while we had a branch, a physical building, we didn't do any of the um, you know, fitness programs. We really did work, uh, again, truancy intervention. We did activities to engage the youth. We gave them places to hang out, things to, to do. We did preschool, really wanted to provide a voice and a place where the community could provide whatever it was the, the community needed for itself. And all of that work, again, was with people of color, not just people, not just black people, but there was a lot of API, uh, a lot of Latinx population. The only population we didn't serve a lot of, honestly, at that particular branch was was Caucasian. But so that that was a great experience because it then put me um, I won't say it brought me back to my roots, but certainly it gave me the opportunity to engage with doing DEI work in a slightly different different way. Yeah. When I be- started working with the Y of the USA, my role there, their, their focus at that particular time was on building a pipeline. So they really wanted to advance and make their upper management level, that pipeline, much, much more robust. 
The Y is a large international organization and is a very, very diverse organization. But the organization identified that there were other things that they need to do. And so that's where I was, I was brought in to, to serve. So one of the things that I learned from that experience was just the geography and how DEI is embraced or not embraced, paid attention to or ignored, depending on the community and depending on where you are in the country. And it really, you know, I, I often say, and I think the experience that I had in the role led me to this belief that really to get at the heart of DEI and to really make significant systematic and strategic changes, I think it really starts with the individual and it starts with the person. Because whether you are in California, whether you're in Florida, you're in Nebraska, wherever you are and whatever the culture is around you, it really is about how inclusive am I? How open am I to others? How often do I engage with other people? What's my thought? What's my fear? How many people do I engage in that are different than me? I think once you can touch someone's heart and get them to think of, have them look at the world in uh, wearing somebody else's glasses, Yes, I think that's when change, that's when there's a shift and that's when real work can happen. Well, and I think what's interesting about what you're saying is I think a lot of times people don't necessarily know they're they're not experiencing something. Because I know like when I was hearing after the George Floyd murder, that's what I heard a lot of people that were like, I had no idea. I mean, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was like this. And so they were kind of grasping with like, it's like an alternate reality in their mind that they they didn't understand. Yeah. And so when you talk about, you know, kind of impacting that one heart at a time, it's hard, I think, for companies to understand how to grasp a strategy that is so micro-focused. Right. You know, I mean, essentially the CEO and the board of directors or, you know, whoever the senior leadership team is, you really do have to start with one person at a time, whoever's sitting at the table, right, to to force that type of change? Yes, exactly. And, you know, a couple of things about what you said. The first is that, yes, I do think because of, you know, the murder of George Floyd, and we can call it a murder because that's exactly what it was of George Floyd, there's been a, a heightened awareness to the the reality that a lot of black and brown people have in this country. But that's really at the extreme. I mean, and unfortunately, there are a lot of those extremes, right? The news is just full of them. But there's all those other things that happen that aren't as extreme, but are embedded in our companies, our institutions, our educational, they're just embedded. 
And it's really hard to see what those are if you're not able to, again, look at the world through somebody else's glasses. And really, you know, I I often hear people say, well, you know, diversity and inclusion really needs to start at the top. It really does need to start at the top, but it needs to also, I would say, it needs to start at the top in a really deep level, not just the level of, oh, it was tragic how the police murdered George Floyd. That was tragic. And we're going to put out a statement and talk about how we don't condone that. That is really, really um, awful, and that's wrong, and that's bad. It's, but it needs to go further. So those same executives need to think about, well, what, what's the experience of people of color in our organization? You know, what, what microaggressions are they experiencing? Are they experiencing any microaggressions? Why, why do people of color leave this company, regardless of their, um, they're, they're black, they're Latino, they're, you know, whatever. Do they stay? Do they not? For what length of time? Right. And yes, as an organization, you can be very diverse, but where are you diverse? Are you diverse in specific departments? Are you, are you diverse more so at specific levels within the organization and not at other levels of the organization? So, you know, I, I think it does start at the very top, but I would say that it really needs to start at the top in a really deep level where somebody is really willing to take off their glasses and put on somebody else's and be open to, to what they find. I was talking to somebody, I don't remember who it was, and it's probably not even relevant, but we were talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and they were talking about just how, you know, messy it can be. And, you know, I was struck by that comment. I'm like, of course it's going to be messy. <laughs> and um, not addressing it is also messy, <laughs> honestly. Oh, right. But you're, right. you're on the other side of it. <laughs> so <laughs> it just it depends on who you, do you want to deal with the mess. Yeah, right? Like, which mess do you really want to focus on? Let's focus on one that makes us better and not worse. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, undoing... You know, I'm doing uh, hundreds, hundreds of years of racism and all the systems that support, that have been supporting racism all these years is a, it's just a complicated process. And I don't want to say that it's going to take hundreds, hundreds of years for it to be fixed. But I do think that it's not something that's going to be fixed overnight, but we can certainly do a better job than what we've had over the last, you know, decade in in making things change. I mean, here we are. My my grandparents, my grandma just passed away uh, in February of this year. She was a hundred and six years old. Had wow. she lived to August, not August, uh, the beginning of April, she would have been a hundred and seven. Wow. She was in her right mind and up until the very, very end. And, you know, just in her lifetime. Now, grant you, she was 106. 
But in her lifetime, just imagine all that she saw. You know, she didn't graduate from high school. Her husband had a third grade education. Um, he passed away a long time ago. Uh, but you know, she was, they were both able to send their first child to, to college when they didn't have an, they didn't have a high school diploma. Right, right. They weren't able to vote. You know, uh, my uh, my grandfather couldn't read. You know, they they were in the segregated South. I mean, it was really, really difficult for them. But that was one lifetime, just one. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, and, and I'm sorry. And here we are still talking about voter rights or right. lack there yeah. in certain states, you know? I mean, yeah. it, she, she went through that and here we are having the same conversation or a very similar one. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry to hear about your grandmother. Sounds like she she definitely has impacted generations based on her own life. So, I mean, we are we are celebrating her for sure. And and as I like to do, when we find and have an ancestor that has impacted us, we need to say their name. So do you want to say her name? I do. Evelyn Shelton. All right. Evelyn Shelton. I say. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. So then as we talk about the many things, you know, that we're going through, and I think right now we have a lot of people talking about healing and the the trauma uh, that has, you know, really come out of slavery and all of the, you know, impacts that the negative impacts from all the systemic racism as well as, you know, all of the other things that go along with it. Are there things strategically that you think that people should focus on when they're doing their own kind of deep work about their own psychology and their own depth of experience? I was listening to a congresswoman the other day on a virtual Zoom, and she mentioned that I, I, I want to say the way she said it was that the social justice, if, if they were looking at, and I believe they were, they did a survey and were looking at priorities and social justice was the second to last priority for white women, according to this survey she mentioned. And so are there things that you think companies need to be thinking about strategically or we need to be thinking about as we kind of dive into the depth of our own, you know, thoughts? Beliefs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think the two things that pop in my head immediately is, you know, educate yourself. You know, I think I was listening to one of your podcasts, and I forget the guests that you had on, but you used the phrase cultural agility. Mm -hmm. And I really liked that that phrase, cultural agility. And 
if you're looking to expand or uh, enhance your cultural agility, one of the easiest ways to do so is to read and read something that is different from you or from somebody's experience that's different from yours. So, you know, maybe you might want to read about a different culture. Maybe you want to read about a different religion. Maybe you want to read about you know, a book for from somebody that's in a different country, whatever the case is, start there and educate yourself. And I think it's important not to just pick up books. I also love biographies. I do think it's important to read biographies from from about someone who you think you really don't agree with, that you don't have a lot of reverence for. And I think the reason for doing that is, again, it educates you. It enlightens you. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with their position. It still could reinforce whatever you thought of before you actually read it. But I think we we need to to chip away at the us and them, whatever yeah. the us and them is. That's that whole diversity of thought, right? And the diverse, uh, it's a diverse perspective. Exactly. It's a diverse perspective. Absolutely. And so, you know, just read, I think, and listen, well, now we have podcasts, right? So (laughs) do that. But, you know, get out of your own mental comfort zone and do things that put you in a situation or put you around people or put a book in front of you that really challenges what you know to be true. Absolutely. And, you know, it's so interesting because I think a lot of times, you know, we have these big chunks of culture. When we say culture, people think, you know, black, white, they think, you know, Asian and Pacific Islander, they have you know, uh, Native American, you know, Latinx. And, you know, identity is so complex because when you talk about culture, you know, you have all these intersectionalities that are, you know, a person is not just one, one thing. And more often than not, they have lots of different components of their culture. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, again, case in point, I'm a black woman, but I'm also very fair skinned. So I have had the unfortunate uh, experience of being able to hear at times what people say when they don't think I'm around. Right. Or someone like me is around. So my, but my experience as a black woman is only my experience. You know, you talk to, you know, one of my sisters, I will tell you about a completely different black experience, black right. woman experience. Yeah. You know, not everybody is alike. We might have some commonalities. But again, that's when I think it's really about the heart because you have to, you know, you have to be able to get out of your own head. I was reading something and I wish I could think of what I was reading. It was recently, though. And, um, it was a quote from somebody, and I'm not going to do the quote. This isn't, I'm not quoting verbatim because I don't have the quote in front of me. But basically, they were saying that most people, when they're conversing with somebody, they're not listening to, they don't, when they're listening, they're not hearing what the person says. While they're 
hearing it, they're actually thinking about what their reply is. Right. Yes. And yes. so you're, that's not communication, you know, really sit and, and I think that it, real communication requires, I should say, real communication requires being able to sit and think and reflect. And so I think being able to educate yourself is one of the, the first things that I think people can do. The other one is I alluded to it in the first, but that is, you know, look at your own, your own world who, and who is a part of it. You know, do you have a lot of different types of people from different walks of life from that speak different languages from different ethnic groups from different parts of the world or country? You know, is, is, is do you have that or is, it, or, you know, or do you not, you know, do right. you have a more homogeneous group, uh, group of people that, that you associate with? And if that's the case, well, then what can you do to heighten your experience, to broaden your worldview? You might have a very narrowed view, as we probably all do to some extent, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, but that would be the other thing I would encourage people to do is to, you know, get out of your comfort zone and get to know people that are, you know, very different than you. Yes, that is a, a great point. I know there have been several people that I've talked to where they'll say, you know, I sat down, you know, maybe at a restaurant or a bar and the person next to me was like, you know, I said, hello. And the person was like, yeah, we don't really have anything in common. And then all of a sudden they were talking for hours. <laughs> because yeah. it's like, you know, people have this view of, oh, if we're not alike, we have nothing in common. But yet there are so many different dynamics that come into play that can make you very connected to someone else. Exactly. And I think that's what we need to find in each other, whether it's in the workplace, you know, in the schoolyard and wherever it happens to be, it's finding those connections because we all are human. And I think once you can let go of the other stuff and uh, connect human to human, I think that's where real change can happen. I used to travel a ton for work. I've gone all over the country multiple times. I've spent, I don't even want to recall how many times I have been stuck at an airport. My flight has been delayed or canceled. I mean, it's been, it's been a lot, but, and I often would, would talk to people and I was recently reflecting just on all of those, the conversations I have had, you know, just you know, in the last decade with people that I've met while traveling and not once, I don't believe, did, you know, politics ever come up. So who's to know what their political stance was? Who's to know, who's to, to know what they thought about a lot of things, right? But at least for what we were talking for about, I mean, we were connecting, Right. We had things in common. They saw me and I saw them. And it just makes me wonder, like, if we could all just con connect and be okay with whatever is on the the other side, because nobody's perfect, right? Absolutely. And, 
we, again, we, we all come with our biases. We all come with our prejudices and, and it won't, and in some cases, a lot of cases, it can't go away, but that doesn't mean that, you know, people can't find connection and you can't interact with them in a human way. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about what you're saying is the degrees of difference are so are when you know in the context of us as people are so um small uh in the scheme of things we are actually way more alike than we are different but we there are so much focus on the differences and we will be different that's one of the things that makes it so exciting to connect with people exactly I, and i'm not uh, by any stretch of the imagination, thinking that, you know, let's just focus on our sameness and ignore our differences. The differences are are valuable. They're really, really important. And those differences, um, as it's been said many times, you know, really needs to be celebrated and needs to be something that we look for. I was talking uh, to my one of my sisters last night about fingernail polish. She was telling me about a company that does clean thin fingernail polish, manufactures clean fingernail polish. And she was telling me the brand of it. And so I went and I looked them up on the internet and I was really surprised to see page of their website. They had a model, hand model, um, and her skin tone was brown. And that just really struck me because a lot of times you don't see that. So I went to multiple pages and multiple pages had people with hands of various different shades. And I love that. And I thought, you know what? That's great. You know what? I'm going to support them. It might cost me a little bit more, but I'm going to support them because they value, they view differences. They know that polish, I know this also sounds like a trivial um, example, but they know that polish looks different on different skin tones. That's and right. so mm-hmm. to have that up front and center on their website, it's like, huh, yeah, I, I, that you're speaking to me. You value differences and you are marketing towards differences. And so I think you're marketing towards me. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, and hopefully we see a lot more of those types of things coming out. Because I know I was even on a Zoom call, I don't know whether it was a month or two ago, and there was a doctor that was on talking about the differences in medical treatment. And in some cases, doctors don't know the differences between what it might look like, a side effect, what what that might look like on someone who has very light skin versus very dark skin, and it can show up so different. So, I mean, I think there's there's a lot to people just thinking outside of what they're used to and just being able to understand what those differences are and really, you know, acknowledging those. So that's awesome. Yeah. And, and I think that it, once we're able to do so, they, it brings a ton of value again to the company that has the, the different models. It, that brings a lot of value. You know, customers can see, um, customers with different color skin can see what polish is going to look like on them. And that is going to make them a much stronger, you know, company. 
companies that are more diverse, you know, will have people around the table that come with a different lens. And that is going to make their product, their service, their, you know, whatever, that much better. Yes. And I mean, there have been studies and studies repeatedly that show that diverse groups form uh, non-diverse groups many times. So it's just about how can you create those groups? How can you retain those groups? And and you do that by making people feel, you know, included, which is the other part of, of you know, DEI or DEIB. Yeah. So so then when you're talking about strategy, are there, you know, is there like a couple of nuggets that you can share in terms of companies that are looking to to do this or if and maybe we work at a company that is striving to be better in this area? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The thing that comes to mind, and I often will uh, post things on LinkedIn about this, is really the culture of the organization. And I think that those companies and organizations that have a culture that supports diversity, equity, and inclusion are going to be much better at doing this work. And so what do I mean by that? A company that is transparent, that is known to be transparent, is going to have a much, much better chance in doing work as it relates to DEI. And it probably goes without saying, but, you know, doing, you really need to be honest. You need to be forthright. You need to elicit trust. And in order to do those things, you need to be transparent. Your employees need to know that what you're saying is accurate and they need to know that you're willing to share the good and the bad. So if you had goals that you set and you didn't reach them, that's fine, but don't sugarcoat it and say that you did or, you know, we did this, even though we didn't do this. The concept is to be transparent, I think is one of the most important things in terms of building a, a culture that works. Trust is another example that was embedded in the last response, but being a trustworthy organization, you know, do you do what you say? Do you follow up with your staff? I think that is another component of culture. I would also say the other little tidbit um, outside of culture would be communication. Um, I was speaking to one of my clients recently, and they've done a lot of, you know, they've done a lot of work around diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is great. The thing is, is they haven't shared that with their staff. And, you know, like a lot of companies these days, they have people all over the place, you know, working remotely. So even if you have an organization, where everybody, you know, comes in, you have to be able to communicate. You have to be able to communicate what's going well, what are you doing, what's not going well, what could you have, what do you need help with, but being able to communicate what you're doing, why you're doing it, what's going to come next, what's the timeline. I mean, you just, I, I always uh, tell my clients over-communicate, you know, just because you said it once, doesn't mean you don't need to say it again and again, yeah. again and maybe again. 
<laughs> That's great advice. Say it again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Say it again. Communicate, communicate. That's awesome. Well, I cannot thank you enough, Tanya, for joining me for this conversation. And I appreciate all that you ha- are doing in the in this area and celebrate kind of the, the just the fact that you were able to be called and do this work tells me that you have work, your work cut out for you. So um, keep doing what you're doing and uh, thank you for contributing and impacting the world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Thank you so much, Melissa. It was my pleasure. And kudos to you, too, for providing a forum for you and your guests to have really, really important, intriguing, and thought-provoking conversations. Thank you for the work that you do. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.